Uh, we are coming to 1 Samuel 16. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesli the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. To sort of bring you up to this point, because it's quite important, because King David, out of all the people in the Bible, is somebody that the Lord wants to recognize in a unique way through eternity. And the first thing we learn about King David, which is really learning about the heart of Jesus, is we learn that by contrast. And so the people back in 1 Samuel 8 said, you know, Samuel, you're getting old, and, and your kids are not following the Lord at all. And, and so there really isn't another person that could be judge over us that's righteous. So we've decided we like to be like all the other nations, and we want a king. Oh, Samuel was pierced to the heart, and, and he explained to them, you guys are not like any other nation because God is your king. How can you improve on that? And he begins to rip into them, and, and God says, Samuel, stop. I know you are feeling dissed by these people, but in reality, they're not just rejecting you. They are, but they are also rejecting me. Don't hold them back. Tell them yes. They can have a king like they want, like all the other nations. Now, just to let you know, when they picked their king on that day, God said, have them go out and look at their fields. And God's hand that was once upon them was removed, and the harvest of that year was disintegrated. And the people came back going, okay, we've changed our mind. And, and God said, no, no. You pushed until you got what you wanted. And now you're going to live with what you wanted. And at first it seemed great. Exactly like they thought of this incredibly good-looking, tall guy, a head taller than everybody else, Saul. And Samuel came and anointed him with oil, and the people rejoiced. And guess what happened? God's Holy Spirit fell on Saul. Shortly thereafter, when the prophets were walking by, he began to prophesy. And they started a proverb that Saul is just like the judges of old, just like the prophets of old. He's anointed by God. And after that, Saul prophesied. They said, is Saul not also a prophet amongst us? And it said that everyone noticed he was a new man. 
different man. God didn't just pout and out of concession give what he wanted. He did it all right. However, this tall, good-looking king, the people's choice, just never had a heart for God. He never had a character to wait for God to move and to work. You might remember that story back in 1 Samuel 13 where once again Saul had to get an army together as he'd done before successfully. But this time the people didn't want to wait. And by the hundreds of thousands they were leaving and the Philistine army was growing and, 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 and they're like, Saul, we've got to fight now before we lose everybody. And, but they were having to wait on Samuel to show up to consecrate this battle and, and do a sacrifice. And, and Samuel was days and days behind. And finally Saul said, you know what? I can do that. I know how to barbecue. Give me an animal. And, and he did the sacrifice. And then Samuel showed up and he said, Saul, what have you done? You know that only the tribe of Levi is to offer sacrifices. And Saul just very arrogantly just said, hey, I can do it. I'm the king. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, my sacrifice is as good as anybody else's. And, and Samuel in shock said, this, this is clear that God had planned, this is important, in 1 Samuel 14, God had planned that your kingdom would be forever, Saul, but now he's ripping it away. Your kingdom isn't going to be forever. The forever plan is off, and he's going to give it to your neighbor, who is a man after God's own heart. And it just continued to disintegrate as we saw Saul, just this self-willed individual who really had no ability or desire to be submissive to the will of God. Way back during the life of Moses, you might remember when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, there was this one group of people called the Malachites, and they were doing this guerrilla warfare, but what they were doing was picking off the weak and the sick and the weary and the half-hearted of, of Israel that had left Egypt, and they were losing the thousands. And finally, for the very first time in Israeli history, God said, stop, Moses, you're going to have to fight against the Malachites. And so these slaves who for 430 years had never touched a sword or a spear and had no idea what to do had to go fight against an elite group of warriors. And Moses stood up on the mountain and let, kept his hands up and prayed and they had victory because of God. But God says, don't forget about those Amalekites because there's a day coming that we are going to bring judgment upon them. Well, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by. And God says, Saul, this is the time. You're going to go down there against those Amalekites. And like when we went into 
Jericho, and we said, don't touch anything of theirs. It's, it's polluted. I want you to go down there, and I want you to wipe out everybody. Everything's defiled. Even the animals are defiled. It's very possible <laughs> that we know many of those countries were into not just homosexuality, but bestiality as well. So who knows whether those animals uh, were literally healthy or not. But either way, God said, bring nothing back. And Saul went down, and he fought against him. God gave him victory, but he was unwilling to kill the royal family. And he was unwilling to kill all the animals, but he kept the best for himself. And in that chapter 15, he comes back with all of this spoils, and, and Samuel comes up to Saul and says, what have you done? Oh, we did exactly, exactly what God said. Then why do I hear a multitude of sheep? Oh, well, those, you know what? The people just wanted to bring 100% of those back to sacrifice to God. Quick thinking. A big, fat lie. Mask in religiosity. I hate religion. Religion just destroys the image of God. And, and he's acting all religious. And, and Samuel says to him, Saul, rebel, or excuse me, stubbornness is the same as idolatry. And rebellion is the same of witchcraft. God can look at the heart of somebody who's just saying, I want to spit in God's face, but I want to worship the one who wants God destroyed, Satan. Rebellious heart. You're like, what does that heart look like? We can't look on the heart, can we? But what would somebody who just actively wants to worship Satan, what would their heart look like? And in essence, he says, you're not as unfamiliar with that heart as you think. When you have that rebellious heart saying, God, I know what you want, but I'm going to serve my flesh. I'm going to do what I want this time. I'll ask forgiveness Saturday night so I don't feel guilty Sunday morning. But I'm going forward with this. He's saying that that heart is the same heart of somebody who worships Satan. And so Saul, you're thinking, oh, no big deal. I didn't do exactly what God wanted. You want me to kill everything off it? You know, come on, live and let live. You know, a few little sheep here and there. What's the big deal? And, and then they brought King Agag forward. <laughs> they left the king alive. And Samuel's like, what have you done? And, and the judgment of God came on Samuel. This holy zeal came on Samuel, and he grabbed a sword, and he hacked Agag up into little pieces in front of everybody. That's the heart you should have had, Saul. To hate what God hates to the degree he hates it. And to love what God loves to the degree he loves it. There's no freer of a place to be. There's no more powerful of a place to be. There's no more joyful place to be. 
God hates these Amalekites who were picking off the weak and the weary and the sick and the half-hearted and, and they were cowards and, and they went to battle against the people who had been enslaved for 430 years. These guys, this is the kind of thing that I want to wipe off the earth and never be remembered again. And, and Saul wants the king to come home to be his buddy. He wants to use them as a trophy to show off when other kings come to visit him. They have somebody to go play ping pong with. And then Samuel turns to Saul and says, God has now officially rejected you, Saul. And Saul's like, well, you know, don't, don't let anybody else know that, please. And, and Samuel's walking away with heat and and Saul the king grabs reaches out and grabs Samuel's garment and it rips and Samuel looks back at Saul and says God has ripped the kingdom now away from you and Saul still grabs onto Samuel and he says at least let's go out everybody's out there and let's put on a good show and stand next to me as I, you know, let the people cheer. And Samuel's like, sure, Saul, let's go. And far as the people knew, that behind the scenes, in the depth that matters, where the root system really counts, Saul was rejected, but he didn't care. Because he knew on the outer shell, he could keep up his religious facade. Well, Samuel, for quite some time, we don't know how long, was grieved. Now, now you say, well, God never wanted a king. Untrue. Way back, why Moses was still alive. In Deuteronomy 17, God said, one day there's going to be a king. And I'm going to write some things out for him to know specifically. Number one, he needs to write out his own Bible by hand. And he needs to read it every day. He's not to multiply wives. He's not to multiply horses. And he's not to multiply silver and gold. I don't want him to have a fleshly arm of the strength. So, Samuel is saying this whole king thing should have been like a moment in time that should have been celebrating and rejoicing. And it was short-lived with Saul. And, and, and this guy on the inside was rotten to the core. On the outside, you never would have known it. But inside, it was just yuck. And now we've got a guy on the throne who's going to probably be there for decades who's just a grief to God and is going to be a plague on the people. And we've just got to wait it out. And Samuel, in verse 2, said, How can I go? Oh, excuse me, verse 1. I, I, I missed a verse there. Back in chapter 1 there, he says, How long are you going to mourn? See, I've rejected him from reigning over Israel, so fill your horn with oil. Go, I'm sending you to Jesse to, down in Bethlehem. And then God says specifically there, I will provide myself a king. 
This time, I'm not providing one for the people. I'm providing a king for me. I want the king of Israel, somebody that rejoices my heart. And we're going to find out that that king was to rejoice God's heart throughout eternity. And so Samuel, if you would, was sinning. How was Samuel sinning? Over grieving. He was over grieving about their sinful leader, Saul. And he said, Samuel, stop it. You're over grieving. Secondly, you're sinning by sitting rather than doing. So I need you to repent from your over-grieving, and I need you to repent from your sitting. Blow your nose for the last time. Wipe your tears. Take a bath. Change your clothes. And I want you to go down to Bethlehem. And there I want you to anoint somebody for me. It's not clear yet quite what's going on. Just step number one. Go down to Bethlehem. And Samuel said, oh, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Does that sound like the Samuel we know? This guy was down. But the Lord said, take the heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So go down to Bethlehem. You'll find a guy there who's over the house of Jesse. And I'm going to pick out my anointed, and you are to follow along with that. And so Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peacefully? Remember, he just hacked up Agag in the last chapter. Whoa. Keep all sharp objects away from him when he comes. And he said, peacefully, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, they had many sacrifices. It wasn't just the sin sacrifice that we often think about. But they had peace offerings and consecration offerings. And, and this, these offerings, fellowship offerings, these are where they would bring their sacrifice. The priest would be a butcher, cut it up in a certain way. Part of it he would burn. Part of it he would cook. And then you sat down with the priest and you eat that steak. And you fellowship. And you talk about your life. So while he's barbecuing, you're fellowshipping. When the barbecue's done, you're sitting down with the family and you're eating and he's talking with everybody. It was the Atkins diet, just in case you guys want to know. <laughs> just protein meal there. And so there were several ways of sacrifice. And so he says, sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And in verse 6, so it was when they came that they looked at Elab and said that, that he, Samuel, saw Elab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Number one, I'm really glad God doesn't look on the outward appearance. I would never be chosen. You know, I'm in trouble. Well, you got to be a little good, good looking. Then I look on the heart. No, 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 no. He, he, flesh is just skin deep, right? And God just looks and says, man, what's going on on the inside? And of course, Holy Spirit every once in a while says you should lose a few pounds, but that's the Holy Spirit, you know. And, uh, and, and he says, you're not going to see it. You're not going to get it. Only I can get it. Now, we can't look on the heart, can we? So we could never really choose God's anointed. Only God can, because only God can look on the heart. Interesting that when it comes to salvation in the New Testament, Paul says it's the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 through 29, for you see you calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Some are, but not very many. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence well, in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 16, So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord's not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? So clearly, Jesse was giving that impression. I, I, I can't, I, I really don't know what to do for you, Samuel. And then he asked to ask him, you don't have any more sons? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So the food's all ready, getting cold. They're standing up rather than sitting down, which would be comfortable. And what do we discover here first about the life of David? Is that his dad didn't really consider him of anything. I mean, let me tell you, if the president of the United States is going to come to your house, you're going to have relative, you're going to extend it out as far as you can. I mean, I'm sure cousins and nephews and, and third cousins were there. Everybody possible. Probably most of these people had never even seen Samuel. This is a celebrity opportunity here. Believe me, anybody worth anything is invited to this thing. And Jesse says, David is not worth inviting. Interesting that, that his own dad was saying, look, here are your choices. There is really no other family choice that you have, Saul or Samuel. And he's like, you've got to be wrong. There's got to be somebody else. Well, I, I hate to even bring it up, and I haven't even sent for him. I don't think he even knows you're here. But we got this guy that I, I just... 
I, I don't I don't count him, to be honest with you. We're gonna see this is a deep thing in David's life. Later in the Psalms, he says, When my mother and father have forsaken me, but yet Lord, you have not forsaken me. Can we cool the AC off a little bit in here? Next week, next week, make sure all the old ladies have to bring their sweaters. Then you know the rest of us are happy. <laughs> make it cooler. Yes, I think he understood that. I see people sweating and fanning, and, and I was wanting to drink so bad, but I thought I shouldn't torment you guys by going. <laughs> anyway, so... We're going to see in the next chapter that his older brothers didn't just minimize David. They believed David was wicked. We're going to see his older brother's description of David. And they just saw this guy that with every bad character and characteristic you can imagine. It's, it's not just man can't see the heart. It's man's judgment is often absolutely the opposite of what God is thinking. I mean, these brothers and this dad couldn't be further from being correct. It's interesting what they said about Jesus. He's a drunkard and a glutton. The Bible tells us Jesus' character never would have allowed that. Well, what, what else? He's a liar. What else about Jesus? I'm going to tell you the real truth. This guy, Jesus, is possessed with the number one head demon over the whole Galilee area. And it's through the power of Satan that he does everything that he does. That was the religious insight on Jesus of the day. How opposite they were, how demonic we can be judging one another sometimes. The Bible just says, you can't do it, so don't. I, I don't think you'll find anywhere in the Bible where it said, well, now that you're class, you know, to be Christian, you can start judging people. But, you know, Took you a while to get that black belt. And so you go ahead. You, you, you have the ability. No, we don't. We can't look on the heart. And we shouldn't judge man's heart as being wicked. We just do not know. We can never know. So the Bible says, what's our position? Let God do all the judging. As for you, believe all things, hope all things, endure, endure all things. Don't, don't have a, a spirit that rejoices in wrong suffer. Don't have a spirit that rejoices over people falling that you had judged to not be right, and now they fall, and that's like, oh, how right I am. No. Doesn't rejoice in wrong suffered. There's just that critical, fault-finding, negative spirit that, that is just wrong, even when you're right. Even when you're right about saying those negative things about a person, you're still wrong because you're saying them and you're thinking them and they're in your heart, right? And so again here, 
One of the things that we see in David is that this guy was deeply scarred by his family. Go ahead, raise your hand. How many of you guys have that same testimony? Oh, man. You're like, oh, is this a trick? You just told me not to be critical. Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, family wounds people. It, it does. I, I can't tell you when I, how many people have just been so hurt by their dads in particular. I was 24 years old when I started pastoring. I had this 70-year-old guy come, and, and it was like I was his dad and he was the child. And he was pouring out his heart, this 70-year-old man. It was like he was six years old child, just destroyed over how his dad treated him. He never, no matter how successful he was, he never got affirmation, got praise from his dad. Of course, his dad now is decades dead. This guy's very prosperous, 70 years old, and he's going to go to the grave weeping <laughs> over that fatherly blessing that never happened. That was David. He never got that healing connection from his dad. He never got that sweet acceptance from his brothers to recognize God's doing something in you, and I respect it. Never happened. What else did God have with David? He had him for years and years as a shepherd. In David's situation, number one, he was in solitude. He was a little tiny boy out in the night with wild animals, responsible as a child over a very valuable thing, these sheep. That's, that's pretty interesting. Boy, we read the Psalms and we realize David really did feel alone out there. He learned to just look at the sky and, oh, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of man? David had a deep connection with, in creation and, and being alone night after night. David also was in obscurity. A shepherd is invisible. Sheep are invisible. David could walk by 100 people and yes, later, did you see a shepherd weigh sheep? No, I don't remember seeing anybody. He was in total obscurity. The last thing about a shepherd is it's monotonous. You get up in the morning, you take the door away from whatever situation you're in. The sheep walk out at their pace. You walk with them at their pace. You don't have a whip. You're not a cattle driver. You got to wait and wait and just slowly, slowly move. And you take the sheep to the green pastures and you take the sheep to the water. And then when you're done, it's exciting. You go back to where you started and you go to sleep. And the next day, the same exact thing. And the next day, the same exact thing. You see, the greatest work God is doing is not through you. It's in you. 
And David is going to be an amazing, amazing king. Not because of what he did, but because of the character of who God had made him into be. And before we end this morning, and we didn't get as far as I would have liked, but we got as far as the Holy Spirit liked. David, what's that mean? In 1 Samuel 13, going back to page three of my notes, it says there that he was a man after God's own heart. Interesting, David had a lot of sinning going on in his life, as we'll see. But in the book of Acts, when Paul is preaching, he says about David, God had this testimony about David. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Man, David blew it big time. But yet, God never, even though he sinned, he repented, genuinely repented. And God was able to fully restore him. Don't get me wrong. He reaped what he sowed more than he could handle, as we all do. But in Matthew chapter 1, I want you to think about this. The beginning of the New Testament it's the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, who's first on the list? Adam, of course. Nope. Well, Abraham. Nope. Jesus, the Messiah, the first sentence of the New Testament, the son of David. Secondly, the son of Abraham. In Luke 1.32, the angel comes to speak to Mary about the exciting thing that the Messiah is going to come and she's going to give birth as a virgin to this Son of God. And, and he said to her in Luke 1.32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So let me go through the list. He's going to be great. He's going to be Son of the Highest. What's the next thing? Messiah really wants you to know, Mary. He's really excited that he's going to sit on the throne of David. Do we, do we get this? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is excited to be enthroned forever and ever upon the throne that's called the greatest of the greatest of the greatest, the holiest of the holiest, the holiest. The throne called the Alpha and the Omega, the throne called the All-Powerful. What's the throne called? <laughs> the throne of a man. The throne after a man that was just a little shepherd boy, nothing from dingy little Bethlehem. A little boy, a man that you never would have looked at him and said, now there's king material. The opposite. Had it been left up to man and their voting and their choosing, David probably would have been the last on that list. But yet God who looks upon the heart, he says, I want you to know 
throughout eternity. I want you to know throughout the New Testament, I want to begin the New Testament telling you something you need to focus in on is that my throne, holy, righteous, where seraphim singer, go holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, that I will set on forever. I can't, I'm excited about this. I can't believe to tell you. I'm going to sit on the throne of David. That blows my mind. It's hard for me to fathom. The number one most written about person in the Bible, save Jesus, is David. Goes on in Romans 1.3. It says, concerning this son, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, what's the first characteristic? Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. First thing you need to know about this guy, as he's talking to the Romans, what does a Roman care about Jewish history? Well, you Roman Gentiles living in Rome with the great Caesars, you need to know up front this Jesus whom you're believing for salvation, the Messiah, our Lord. First thing, he has come from the lineage of David. In 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to the gospel. Paul in 2 Timothy says two important things you shouldn't forget about Jesus. Number one, he's the seed of David. Secondly, he raised from the dead. <laughs> You're like going, what is going on here? In Revelation 3.7, the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. In Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed and opened the scroll the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Do you, do you understand as we are heading into this story of the life of David, that we are touching on a nerve with God saying, if you want to get me, <laughs> you need to focus in on the life of David. Well, of course, Jesus want to sit on the throne of David. He's the most holy guy we read about in all the Bible. <laughs> Is that true? He was this, just this guy who was a spiritual giant who never sinned once. He was this guy who just always made the right decisions, never made the wrong decision. You know, you know what we see in David? A guy who, like us, our spirit is willing, but so many times our flesh is weak. We see in David the same thing we see in these bodies, 
Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. David came into that point over and over again in the Psalms. But also he would constantly come back and say, yet because of your mercies, I know I'm going to be renewed. Because of your grace, I'm going to rejoice. David was a man after God's own heart for a number of things. But one is he had tremendous faith that God could save him no matter what valley he found himself in. There's some of you here today that may not think that that God can cleanse you again. God can renew you again. God will receive you again. Well, David, he committed adultery. He murdered her husband. A whole bunch of collateral damage, a whole group of mighty men who had followed David for decades died to, so David could cover up the fact that Bathsheba was pregnant. David couldn't trust that God would forgive him. He's like, I've, whatever the unpardonable sin is, I'm sure I've crossed, I've committed it. And the Bible says his bones were waxing old. And then in Psalms 23, what does David say? You are my shepherd. You can restore my soul. Matter of fact, you do restore my soul. One of the most famous verses in all of literature, not Christian literature, all of literature, one of the verses that probably most of the world knows. Surely, your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I got my fingers crossed, and I hope, I hope, I hope. Now, what does he say? And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David believed in the Messiah. Wherever our sins abound, his grace abounds more that David, being a righteous man, but fell seven times, he could get up all seven times because surely his goodness and mercy would follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the gospel we have. Settle down. You don't have to tell anybody yet. You can wait till Monday. But I, I, I know how you're feeling. It's like, let's get out of here. Let's just grab the first guy on the street. I need to tell you how wonderful of a Messiah we have. I need to tell you the depths of God's love and grace and mercy and, and his joy, his pens in his hand, we're ready to write your name in the book of life. Give him an excuse to do so. Wow. David understood the depths of God's patience and forgiveness. And this is one of the great things that we're going to see that David had. Tremendous faith in God his Redeemer. Well, Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you as we head into our series on David. We know that there's something powerful, life-changing, most, most written on the Bible outside of you, Jesus, is David. You, you're pointing to him as loudly as you can. We see that through eternity, you are going to glorify him. David upon the throne. David have the kingly keys. The mercies of David, the sure mercies of David. 
Lord, we come and we just stop right now and we say, Lord, you're speaking to us. Lord, do I have that faith? Do I trust in you to the degree David did? And right now this morning, if you have sinned much, God also can forgive much more. Just repent. If you confess your sin is sin, I'm dirty, Lord. I've muddied myself. I've made myself unclean, and I fear that it'll happen again, but I come right now, Lord, and I say, I believe you, God, that the power of the cross is greater than the power of my flesh, that the work of your blood cleansing is greater than any sin I could ever commit. I trust in you now, Lord. And I ask for your power to live a holy, righteous life. Oh, how beautiful it is to be a fruitful person in you. Take us now deeper. Cleanse us, Lord. Heal us. And we just ask that we would wash one another in the water of your word today as we leave here, speaking into each other's lives, praying for one another. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you.